I see the clock has already been changed to daylight savings time, so our time is up. <laughs> we'll head right on out now. Uh, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. And a passage that we've been looking at now for several weeks. We want to resume our study this morning of the fruit of the Spirit and the focus again will be upon our the, the seventh aspect or dimension of the fruit of the Spirit, which is faithfulness. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Let's bow together and pray, ask for the Lord to help us as we consider His Word this morning. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we are thankful for Your Word, for the Scriptures that You have provided for us. We pray now this morning that the Holy Spirit would help us to receive and understand this Word, that we, that we, Your people, might grow in true faithfulness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, just to remind ourselves of the fundamental truths that help to govern our understanding of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, what we have here in this uh, reading, we have the primary work of the Spirit in the sanctification of the people of God. His primary fundamental assignment in the work of our salvation is to make us holy people, to transform the people of Christ into the moral image of Christ, to change us, to mold us, to sanctify us, so that we become more and more conformed to the image of the Son of God. So the primary work of Christ's Spirit in us is not to enable the saints to speak in tongues or to work miracles or to utter prophecies, but to remake us and transform us into the image of Christ and make us fruitful in every good work. And then keep in mind this ninefold fruit of the Spirit uh, taken as a unit is nothing more or less than a composite picture, a mosaic picture we could say, of the righteous and holy character of the Lord Jesus. He is indeed the perfect man. He's perfectly, he perfectly manifested all of these nine virtues or character traits in his own human life. And so, if we would be like Christ, we too must cultivate, we must grow in these uh, nine dimensions and characteristics of fruit in our lives. And so we want to return this morning to the fruit of faithfulness. Now, we have defined, already defined faithfulness, uh, or a faithful person, as one who is truthful, one who is trustworthy and dependable, somebody worthy to be trusted, somebody who keeps their word and keeps their promises. And we've already seen that God Himself is the great model of faithfulness, that He is indeed the faithful God who keeps covenant with His people, that keeps His word, He keeps His promises, 
He is the God of truth who cannot lie. He is absolutely worthy, brothers and sisters, of all of our trust and all of our confidence. God is faithful who called you into fellowship with His Son. 1 Corinthians 1.9, or as Jeremiah put it, Great is your faithfulness. Lamentations 3.23 And appreciate that Christ Jesus is the greatest human example of faithfulness. He was faithful. Faithful to His Father's will and His purpose for Him. Faithful in His obedience to the law of God. Faithful to offer up uh, a true sacrifice to God. Faithful in His intercessions for us. Faithful in showing compassion to needy people. He is a faithful as well as a merciful high priest, the Word of God tells us. Well, this is the attribute, the characteristic that the Holy Spirit of God is at work producing within us. This Christ-like, God-like faithfulness that we are called to imitate Him. And I would submit to you that one of the areas that we are called to imitate our Lord in is faithfulness. And that like the Lord Jesus, we would be found faithful even unto death. As one has said, true religion makes a man to be faithful. Now, I want to look at this this morning under three headings. Number one, the requirement of faithfulness. Number two, some of the roles, or I'm sorry, some of the realms in which we are called to be faithful and the rewards of being faithful. So first of all, the requirement of faithfulness. Uh, now, now by requirement I mean this, that God expects us to strive as His people to be faithful. That He requires us to be faithful to Him in every area of life. Keep in mind uh, the synergism of sanctification. Synergism is just a big word. It means that we cooperate uh, with someone else. In this case, God's people, because they have the Spirit of God within them, the Spirit's working within us, but we cooperate with the Spirit in terms of our sanctification. Uh, this is something that God's Spirit works in us, but that does not in any way negate the fact or diminish our responsibility to work this out and nurture it in our lives. Yes, it's a fruit of the Spirit that God expects us then to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. God works it in, we're to work it out. Philippians 2, 12 and 13. And this is true with faithfulness. Yes, it's a fruit of the Spirit. And yet we're expected, brothers and sisters, in fact we're required by the Lord to be a faithful people to cultivate a faithful disposition of heart within our own within our hearts and within our lives. Now, <clears throat> I want to show you that principle. Kind of an odd place perhaps, but I think you'll see what I mean when we flesh this out a little bit. But Luke chapter Luke chapter 16. And here the Lord Jesus is actually addressing the whole issue of stewardship. Now, a steward 
is someone who has been given responsibility of managing someone else's affairs or property. Uh, that's what you have here. The parable is about a steward. And uh, he's probably addressing or targeting the Pharisees or the Jewish leaders. Uh, they've been given uh, so much by God, both spiritually and temporally. But yet they were horrible, unfaithful stewards of all that God has appointed to, had appointed to them. And Christ tells a story of an unjust, unfaithful steward that wasted, he squandered all of the goods that his master had given to him. And yet he ended up demonstrating uh, wisdom in dealing with his master's um, <clears throat> situation, his creditors. And Jesus commends this steward for his eventual shrewdness and wisdom. And we want to read Jesus' interpretation. I'm not going to read the whole parable because it's addressing a secondary issue for our concern this morning, but Jesus' interpretation and application uh, hits us right on the head where we need to be thinking this morning. So let me read Luke 16, and I'll start up in verse 9, a very interesting passage. <clears throat> I say to you, now remember, he's given the parable. He says, I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fall, or fail, I'm sorry, fail, they may receive you into an everlasting home. And he who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, and unrighteous mammon has to do just with material blessings, material things, then who will commit to your trust the true riches? We assume there he's talking about spiritual riches and blessings. And if you have not been faithful in what is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one, or we could say faithful to the one, and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Now, uh, like I said, verse 9 is a very difficult passage, a very difficult statement. I take it to mean, though, that uh, being faithful stewards, especially in the realm of temporal things, money and so forth, giving, perhaps, uh, has eternal rewards, but we're not going to focus on that so much. But our study this morning, I want you to notice uh, two or three principles here that we can draw out of this uh, passage that we've just read. Number one, it could be argued, first of all, that all men, especially Christians, who have been given so much by God, are in a position of stewardship to God. So we're not talking here just about the Pharisees, just about the Jews. Yes, they were given a lot of blessing, but brethren, so are we. Everything we are, everything we possess, has been given to us by our God. God has lavished His mercy and goodness upon us. And so there's nothing that we are, nothing that we have, that we've not received from Him. And as such then, we are stewards. Nothing we have really belongs to us. You appreciate that. God has given it to us. He owns it all. We're just using it for His glory. 
We're stewards. We're managing those things that He's given us. We're given the task of wisely and faithfully managing and using all that we are, all that we have for the glory of God. Our time, our money, our gifts, our our resources, our talents, everything God has given to us in this world, we are God's stewards in a very real and very practical sense. So that's the first idea here. We're all stewards in one way or another. Secondly, God requires us to be faithful to Him in our stewardship. He requires us to be faithful. That's the whole point of the parable. It's the point of His application. Remember how Paul, speaking to or about preachers, he said a steward must be found faithful. So God expects us as stewards, to be faithful. He requires it from us as stewards. And how we exercise our stewardship will manifest as whether or not we're truly faithful to Him or not. Stewardship and faithfulness go together. Then thirdly, faithfulness will prove itself in the smallest of matters and temporal matters as well. The truly faithful man or woman is going to be faithful in the little things as well as the big things. Look at verse 10. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. So in other words, faithfulness is a disposition of heart. And if we are faithful, if our heart is faithful, if our disposition is faithful, then we're going to be faithful people in every area of life. It's going to manifest itself in every dimension of life, whether it be a big matter, a large matter, a small matter. Unfaithfulness and faithfulness evidence themselves by our faithfulness in small as well as large matters. You have someone say, I would be faithful to Christ if a Muslim radical held a gun to my head and demanded that I recant Christ. I would be faithful. I would take a stand for Christ in that situation. That's a big deal. You want to be faithful in something? The day may come we'll have to do something like that. But that same individual doesn't seem to have enough uh, faithfulness to give of his income to the Lord. Uh, He's not faithful enough to get out of bed and come to church. Looks for excuses not to. Well, let me say this. That person is kidding himself or herself if he thinks he will be faithful unto death if they have a gun to his head and say, you recant Christ or I'm going to blow your brains out. Don't kid yourself if you think you'll stand for Christ when the gun is at your head, when you won't do what's right in the little things. You see my point. That was Jesus' point. You're going to be faithful in the little things. will prove itself in faithfulness in the big things down the road. And the opposite is true. He who is faithful in what is least 
will be faithful also in much. He who is unjust in what is least will also be unjust in what is greater. And brethren, God often tests our faithfulness to Him in small matters. Let me give you the classic example. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. Do you understand that the entire world fell into sin and was condemned? Guilt passed upon all men. Why? Because Adam ate of a forbidden fruit given to him by his unfaithful wife. And so he thumbed his nose at God by eating that fruit. And he fell. And dying he ended up dying. And he took every one in the world with him. A small thing. Is it really a big deal that I'm going to eat that, and I say apple, pear, whatever it was. Is it really a big deal? Who cares? God cared because He said, don't eat of it. Yeah, it was a small thing. But you know what? In the eyes of God, it was everything. He was testing Adam's heart. He was not faithful in the least. And then you can bet He would not be faithful in the bigger matters. You see the principle. It's a simple principle. But we need to understand what Jesus is saying here. It's a universal principle, brethren. Faithfulness to God is a matter of our hearts. In fact, faithfulness is a mark of true Christianity. Paul often addressed in his, his uh, epistles, his letters, to the he would address them like this, to the saints in so-and-so, in Colossae or Ephesus, and to the faithful brethren. Uh, he does this in Colossians uh, 1 verse 2. Now I don't think his point is to identify two different categories of Christians in the church, the saints and the faithful brethren. Well, you've got the saints sitting on the left side and the faithful brethren on the right side. That's not his point. They are synonymous terms. The saints, simply the set-apart ones, the holy ones, they are the faithful ones. They are the faithful people of God. Revelation 17, 14, the people of Christ there are identified as called, chosen, and faithful. In other words, faithfulness to God, faithfulness to the truth, is something that marks off the true saints. Every believer, by definition, is faithful. And every Christian is called by God to exhibit and demonstrate and cultivate faithfulness every day in his life, in his heart. Not just in the manna, I'm sorry, in the mammon rather, but in every department of life. Revelation 2.10, Jesus exhorted the church members at Smyrna to be faithful unto death and I'll give you a crown of life. And so, brethren, we're called to be faithful, even if it costs us our lives. And so faithfulness, brothers and sisters, is something that God requires of us. He expects His people to be like Him, faithful all of our days. God judged the nation of Israel because they were a generation of people who were not faithful to God in their heart, in their spirit. Uh, Psalm 78, 8. So that's the requirement of faithfulness. But now secondly, let's consider a few of the realms in which we're called to be faithful. <clears throat> the more I thought about this, the more inadequate this sermon is going to be. Uh, 
Um, sometimes you get to Sunday morning and you go, oh my, my, I wish there was something better, different. But it is what it is, and so you're going to get this. But keep in mind, there are many other things we could say about faithfulness, and so we're, we've cherry-picked a few things this morning. Um, but this is not the end of it, of course. But anyway, uh, faithfulness, the first thing, well, let me, let me say this. There are two broad categories we want to deal with in terms of faithfulness. Two broad categories. Faithfulness in the first place to God. <clears throat> And then faithfulness to our fellow man. Alright? And clearly, faithfulness to God is the foundation of everything else. We owe faithfulness to Him supremely, first and foremost. He is our God. He is our Lord. He is our King. He is our Savior. He is our Creator. And we must, at all costs, we must be faithful to Him. And we cannot truly be faithful to our fellow man and our human uh, relationships and commitments if we are not in the first place devoted to being faithful to our Lord. And I want to give you four areas specifically. Four areas specifically. Again, there's so many more. But just going to give you four quickly. Number one, we must be faithful in regards to God's Word and His truth. In other words, we must be prepared as the people of God, as the church, to hold and defend and proclaim the truth of God's pure word and gospel that we would be prepared to do whatever it takes to embrace and hold for ourselves and then proclaim to others Defend from error the truth of God found in the Word of God, and especially that's true of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of salvation in Christ alone, received by faith alone. The church of God is called to be pillar and ground of the truth. 1 Timothy 3.15 Now, a pillar... Uh, is something that holds up something like the, like the roof. And perhaps you've seen columns in some of the big houses in the south, and you've seen columns. And those white columns are usually white, and they hold up part of the roof. You, you know what I'm talking about, a pillar, a column. And that's what this is talking about, a pillar. We're a pillar of the truth. A ground really is a foundation, and that's the support of a structure. The entire building rests down upon the foundation. Listen to a commentator by the name of John Stott as he defines this for us. Listen carefully. Here is the double responsibility of the church in regards to the truth. First, as its foundation, it is to hold it firm so that it does not collapse under false teaching. Secondly, as its pillar, it's to hold it high so that it's not hidden from the world. To hold the truth firm is the defense and confirmation of the gospel. To hold it high is the proclamation of the gospel. And the church is called to both ministries. Now, I thought that was very good. 
Brethren, we're to be faithfully, tenaciously, and jealously guarding and defending and maintaining the truth of the Word of God and proclaiming that truth and the gospel of God into the ears of our generation. What does that mean? It means, first of all, First of all, that you and I come to know, embrace, and love the truth for ourselves. That God's Word and the Gospel and the truth must become our mainstay. It must be our hope uh, that the truth has come to, to rule our souls. That the Word of Christ has become more precious to us than fine gold. That we're never going to be faithful in defending or proclaiming the truth until we come to love it and believe it uh, uh, for ourselves, you see. We We must cling to it and be prepared to defend the truth of God against false teachers and against error. Now, there was a man um, almost a hundred years ago by the name of Gresham Machen. Um, And he was a professor of theology at Princeton University. Or Princeton Seminary, I'm sorry. And uh, liberalism was coming in, all kinds of different errors were coming into the church and into uh, the seminary. Different men were being hired that 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 were not right. And, And this man stood like a bold lion against the influx of these heresies and these aberrations of truth and so forth. And um, anyway, he was bold as a lion, and his, his uh, tombstone says, today his, his tombstone says, faithful unto death. And we need more men like that today. True. Men that are faithful even unto death. But it's not just preachers or seminary professors that need to be prepared to defend and uphold the truth of the gospel, brothers and sisters. All of us, in all of our our spheres, our own spheres, we are called to love the truth. We're called to speak the truth in love. Jude, addressing the saints in general, all those who were partakers of of the common salvation. It's talking about you and me. He exhorted them to contend earnestly for the faith that was once once for all delivered to the saints. That's our responsibility. Every one of Christ's people, not just preachers, not just seminary professors, are to be prepared to defend the, the faith, to contend earnestly for the faith once delivered to the saints. It was delivered to the saints. It wasn't delivered to the seminary. It wasn't delivered just to preachers. It is delivered to preachers. But it's delivered to the saints, to the whole church of God. We're to be able, Peter says, to give a reason for the hope that God has given to us. Are we prepared to do that? Are we prepared to do that? Are we firmly committed to the truth of the gospel in our own hearts? Are we able to give a defense of the hope that's in us to those who may ask us? In a day when the gospel of Christ has been watered down and manipulated and altered and 
made compatible with the whims of men, you and I need to be boldly proclaiming the true gospel in our own generations. We are stewards of the gospel. We are pillar and ground of God's truth. And we simply cannot be faithful to God and yet fail to be faithful stewards of the truth of God. Uh, <clears throat> secondly, we must be faithful to the pure worship of God. Now, I want you to understand and appreciate how important the Ten Commandments are in the life of a Christian. I know that there are places where uh, there are those that would say the Ten Commandments have little or nothing to do with the Christian life. I beg to differ with that. I think they are very important. And the first four of those commandments have to do with what? The worship of God. And that should tell us how important worship is to God. Uh, the first commandment, uh, having no other gods before us, no other lords before us but the true and living God. Uh, we're to worship that one true God. He's the object of our worship. The triune, living, omnipotent, glorious God is the object, the only object of our worship. Secondly, the manner of worship. He says, no worship with idols. No images. No carved image. No idols. We're to worship the true God in spirit and in truth and in the manner that He Himself has prescribed. Now, that's a, that's a biggie. We're to worship God like He's told us to worship Him. Thirdly, the disposition of true worship. Uh, says we're not to take the Lord's name in vain. That is in an irreverent, heartless way. God requires reverence and sincerity of heart in our worship. The psalm that we read this morning. We're to call upon Him. With, we're to sing His praises with joy and with reverence and with awe. That's how we approach Him. The disposition of worship. God requires reverence and sincerity of heart. In our worship. And then fourthly, the appointed special time for public worship. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The Lord's day. First and foremost is a day set aside primarily for worship. The Lord's day is the queen of days. Where we draw near to God in a special and corporate way. It's very important. And so I would suggest to you, brethren, that one of the most important areas in which we are called to be faithful is in the worship of our God. God is a jealous God. And He's very jealous for His own worship, brethren. He made that very clear when He struck people dead that dared to approach Him and worship Him in ways that He Himself had not prescribed. Where priests of all people offered up strange fire that He had not commanded, and God struck them dead on the spot. I think a good argument could be made that one of the driving forces of the Reformation itself, back in the 1500s, extending into the 1600s, was the purity and reformation of the worship of God. It's just as important to those men, the Reformers, the Puritans, as was the purity of doctrine and justification by faith alone. 
can't, would not separate pure worship from a pure gospel because they go together. And dear brothers and sisters, in a day when uh, the worship of God in many cases has become little more than a platform to entertain people, uh, where anything and everything is acceptable, whatever people want, if it will draw a crowd, let's do it. We've we become, instead of giving God what He wants, we've become very pragmatic. Uh, if people like it, let's do it. We need to be very zealous to guard and maintain the purity and sanctity of the worship of God. We need to stand against the, the tide and the pressure to be uh, avant-garde, to be popular, to be innovative. We need to see God's worship as our opportunity and our privilege to ascribe to our God the glory due unto His name and to praise Him with all of our hearts. Many of our forefathers, many of the reformers, many of our, our own Baptist forefathers were burned at the stake because of this principle. Because they refused to give an inch when it came to the worship of God. Then we need to be faithful to honor Christ in times of trial and persecution. Trial and persecution. Look at Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. And um, hmm. verses 10 and 11. This is Jesus, of course, the ascended Christ speaking to the church in Smyrna, one of the seven churches of Asia Minor. Uh, chapter 2, verses 10 and 11. Uh, Do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. See, the church has always been a suffering church. This idea that everything's just going to be peachy keen and lovely and sweet and lovely here in this world is simply wrong. You're a Christian. You're going to suffer. True. You're going to have trials. You're going to have tribulation. You're going to have persecution. Mark it down. But do not fear any of those things which you are about to suffer. Indeed, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested or tried, and you will have tribulation, crushing tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death or until death, and I will give you the crown of life. He goes on to say, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Oh, you may die once, but you won't die twice. See that? Convinced this is Jesus is speaking to a real local church there in Asia Minor in Smyrna. They had a, <clears throat> a specific literal application to them. They were going to be tried. They're going to be tested. They're going to be persecuted for their faith. And it's in that context that Jesus exhorts them to be faithful even unto death. That He would grant His faithful saints a crown of life. Same thing down in verse 13 to the next church. The, the, the church of Pergamos, Pergamos. The same thing. Now it's difficult I think, think for people here in our country uh, to get their arms around the idea of being faithful unto death. Because we live in a free society. We don't face that kind of fierce hostility and persecution that many of our brethren and brothers and sisters do in other parts of the world. Uh, even getting closer and closer to home, even in Canada. I uh, saw just last week a high school student in a Catholic school of all places. 
was suspended. He was kicked out of school and arrested by the police. Oh my goodness, why did they do that to him? Because he dared to stand up for biblical sexuality and didn't like the idea of boys, men, basically, at that age, going into the girls' bathrooms. And he had the gall to say something about it. And they said, you put a, a zip on your mouth or out you go. That's Canada. Canada. It's getting close to home, folks. And, you know, persecution is overall pretty, pretty tame here, pretty mild here. But brothers and sisters, that really could change very quickly. And in the meantime, no doubt we're going to be tried. We're going to be tested in, in other ways. We all will face trials and temptations and, and sorrows of, of different sorts. But Christ calls His brethren to be faithful even unto death, no matter what it may cost us. Not to give in to unbelief. Not to, 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 to give in to the pressure to compromise. Not to dishonor His name. But to remain faithful and, and loyal and obedient disciples of Christ. We need to learn what it means to stand fast in, in the evil day. And to be strong in the power of His might as we fight the good fight of faith. The promise is, He'll give us a crown of life. If we suffer with Him, we also will reign with Him. You see, our trials, this is a very important principle, so don't tune this out. Our trials, and they come in all different shades and varieties, but whatever they are, our trials are opportunities for us to demonstrate our devotion to Jesus as well as His faithfulness to us. You understand that? Why am I going through all these things? Why do I have to suffer all these things? Because that's your stage. God takes you and He puts you on the stage. That's all of your trials and sorrows and suffering. He says, now child of God, by my grace and by my strength, I want you to glorify me on stage in the midst of your sorrows, your trials, your griefs, and your persecutions. That's the real answer to most of this. Not, it's not the whole answer. But that's part of what it is. God's working all things together for our good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. Oh, that means I'll, I'll not have any trouble. That means I'll sail through life on flowery beds of ease and go to heaven when I'm... That's not what that means. Read the rest of the chapter. Persecution, trial, suffering, sorrow. And it's in the midst of all that that Jesus says, You are more than conquerors through Me who loved you and gave Myself for you. Amen. You're a conqueror. Not because you don't have those things, but because I give you grace and strength to stand strong and faithful in the midst of those things. And if we don't nail that down, all we're going to do is have pity parties all day long. You understand that? Amen. Be faithful unto death. You mean I have to die for the faith? Maybe. Maybe. Some of you young people, maybe. The time may come. Just to heed the warning. Don't give in to the pressure to compromise. The Lord wants us to stand for Him. 
period. By His grace, the power of His might, you won't do it on your own, but God gives His people grace to be faithful to Him when days are very difficult. And then we need to be faithful to God's cause in Christ's church. And that should go without saying, but in our day, some modern Christians have managed to divorce faithfulness to the Lord from faithfulness to His cause and to His church. I would suggest to you that is an unbiblical divorce. That's an unbiblical divorce. The church of Christ is, is, is His flock. It's Christ's body, His bride, His temple. Uh, it's everything to Jesus. Um, you remember how in Ephesians 5, how we read that Christ loved the church and gave Himself for her. For her. Because He loved her. And that He might sanctify her and present her to Himself as His holy spotless bride. Christ shed His precious blood to redeem His church. The church is His beloved betrothed bride, brothers and sisters. Or in Ephesians 3.21, it says that God receives glory in the church through Christ Jesus unto all generations. Or in Revelation, those first four chapters that we looked at one of them just a moment ago, he tells John there to write to who? Who did he write to? Sally May over in the Turkish islands? No, no, no. He wrote to the seven churches of Asia Minor. That's who he spoke to. The churches. The churches. When Paul, Christ's representative, writes epistles to instruct the saints, who does he primarily write those letters to? To the churches at Galatia, uh, Colossae, Ephesus, Philippi, Thessalonica, and so forth. Now, I don't want to labor my point. But brethren, how is it possible to be faithful and loyal and committed to Christ and yet not be faithful, loyal, and committed to His church, which is His beloved body. I say it's impossible. True. It's impossible. The church of Christ is a divine institution, chosen by Christ, redeemed by Christ. This is where He's put His name. This is where He dwells in a special way. And it's in the gathered church that He's to be especially glorified and honored by His people and in His people, where He speaks to us through His Word. The question is, do you and I have the same kind of love and dedication and concern for the church that Jesus has? Do we share Jesus' faithful commitment to the church? Do we share His delight in the brothers and sisters that He has put in our midst? Do we have zeal for the church and for the welfare of of God's people. The fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. And in the first place, it will be faithfulness to the Lord Himself, to His Word, to His will, to His worship, and His honor, even in the midst of trial and persecution, and to His church and His cause in the world. Now, there's, there's a couple of other points I want to make, and I know it's we're getting close here. Give me just a few more minutes and we'll wrap this up. Number one, now we're going to talk now about our faithfulness when it comes to our own relationships. It's one thing to be faithful to God. It's another to be faithful to our fellow man. All of these things are inseparable. 
But we're, we're called, brethren, to be faithful, to imitate the Lord Jesus in our faithfulness in all of our human dealings, relationships, and commitments. For example, we're called to be faithful to our covenant commitment <clears throat> even as God is to His covenant commitment. Ecclesiastes 5 warns us about making uh, vows, vows to God. It says when you make a vow, that's a sacred promise to God, do not delay to pay it for He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not to pay. And so we should never make a vow. We should never make a sacred promise to God. Do it lightly. We need to be prepared to pay or to do whatever we vow before the Lord and recognize the solemnity and the seriousness of making vows, making covenant commitments to the Lord and before the Lord. So that's where we begin. Being faithful as men and women of God to our covenant commitments. Now, we make a covenant commitment or take a vow when we get married. We, uh, we take public vows in God's name and before God. And we commit ourselves in a perpetual covenant of love or to love and to be true and faithful to our spouse through sickness and health um, for richer or for poor, for better or for worse, until death parts us. That's a solemn vow and covenant. And we make it before God. Malachi 2.15 teaches that marriage is a covenant of companionship not to be broken. And woe to those who willingly break those vows and who are unfaithful to the spouse that God has united us to. Let not man put asunder what God has joined together. We need to see our marriage covenant as sacred, as something God Himself will hold us accountable for, brothers and sisters. We need to be careful that we don't violate that covenant. And by the way, we can violate that covenant with our eyes. Now, not in the sense of getting a divorce. I understand the difference. But we need to be careful about our faithfulness to our spouse, even with our eyes. Very, very important that we do that. And let me say this too, since we have some young people with us, I would urge you not to enter into marriage without thinking seriously about it. Uh, don't take this lightly. Uh, this is sacred and solemn stuff. Uh, don't allow yourself just to be swept off your feet, girls, guys. Um, by somebody until you're convinced by wise counsel of your parents and your pastor that this person is right for you. So be careful about this matter because marriage is a big deal. It's a covenant commitment before God. But we also make a covenant commitment to Christ and to His people when we join ourselves to His church where we voluntarily by the grace of God, we're added to a church, yes, but we voluntarily commit, commit ourselves to the principles of the Word of God, which are laid out, in our case, in our church covenant and constitution. One reason we sing or read that church covenant every time we have the Lord's Supper. It's not like we want to bore everybody to death, but we want to remind each of us of the kind of commitment we have made before God, 
to be faithful to Christ's church in this place. And while we never want to bind anyone's conscience to any unbiblical or ultra-biblical biblical duty or doctrine, clearly joining with Christ's church involves a covenant commitment that demands faithfulness. Where we commit ourselves to gather regularly with God's people to worship our God, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We're committing ourselves to pray for one another, to love one another with a pure heart fervently, to care for one another, to forgive one another, to give cheerfully, to maintain the cause of the ministry. And all of these are biblical principles of church life. And we as Christ's people are expected to be faithful church members. In fact, it should be our great privilege and our our great delight to serve Christ in His church because the church is God's family here on the earth. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. The church is Jesus' precious bride that He loves with every fiber of His being. This is God's house, God's temple. We all need to be reminded what we have committed ourselves to. And more importantly, what the Lord expects of us as members of His church. It's very important. And it's so sad today to see people. They come to the front of a building, sign a little car, say, you're going to join the church? Yes, everything's cool. They go on their way. And three weeks later, they're nowhere to be found. That's, that's terrible. The church is important, and this is a covenant commitment that we make that we should stand by and be faithful to by the grace of God. We're to be faithful when it comes to our word and to the promises that we make. We're to be like God. We're to be trustworthy. When we speak, it ought to be the truth. Everything we, we should do everything in our power to avoid telling a lie or deceiving anyone or, or, or making a word, uh, breaking, I'm sorry, breaking a word or breaking our promise to whoever. There's an old saying that a man's word is his bond. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Psalm 15.4, the psalmist likens those people who are welcome to dwell in God's holy presence. And among the virtues of the true worshipers of God is he who swears to his own hurt and does not change. That's, a, that's tough. Because here's a person and he makes a promise. And it winds up costing him a lot, a lot more than he bargained for. But he keeps his word. He refuses to, to renege on that promise regardless of personal loss. He, he'd rather lose some of his wealth than his reputation and his integrity. Brothers and sisters, we need to be men and women of integrity. People that other people can trust. People that they can, they can depend upon us. People, we need to be people that are committed to keeping our word. Committing to always speaking the truth in everything. In business dealings. In all of our dealings. We're called to be trustworthy and faithful and dependable people. That's one of the ways we shine as lights in this world. Because we live in a very unfaithful, deceitful world, do we not? Christians should never be like that. Never, never for a moment should we deceive people or lie to people so that we can get something. Never, ever, ever. 
We say we're going to do something, we do it. When we promise something to our children, we do it. We do all we can to fulfill it. We say something to someone, they should be sure it's the truth and all the truth and nothing but the truth. That's faithfulness, brothers and sisters. And of all people in the world, we need to be faithful and trustworthy with all of our dealings with our fellow man. Can't be, you can't be like God and not be trustworthy. A couple of very brief, quick applications. The first is Christ promises blessing and reward to faithful men and women. God promises reward to faithful men and women, both in this life and the world to come. Someone has one verse 6, my eyes, God says, my eyes shall be on the faithful of the land that they may dwell with me. A faithful person has God's attention and God's blessing. He shall dwell with me, the Lord says. The greatest blessing and privilege we could possibly enjoy, brethren, is to, in, to dwell with God. This is no small matter. Faithful men and women enjoy the felt, known, eternal presence of the Lord. They will enjoy God's fellowship and smile forever. Revelation 2.14 says, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you a crown of life. You'll be crowned with eternal life. If you suffer with Him, you will reign with Him. After in the parable of the talents, you have the two, the two talent and the five talent person. Talents are simply, in that day, they were simply uh, coins worth so much money. But they also represent gifts, opportunities, privileges, and so forth. But it says those who were faithful, the two and the five talent folks, they were faithful stewards of what the Lord had given to them. This is what Jesus says to them. Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I will make you a ruler over many things. And, and enter then into the joy of your Lord. Brothers and sisters, there is reward for being faithful to God. Faithful brother or sister will be greeted with the commendation of his master. Welcome to enjoy the presence of Christ forever. Christ's smile now and Christ's joy in heaven. Never think for a moment that serving God faithfully is for naught. God is not unjust to forget your labor of love, which you have showed towards His name, brethren. Hebrews 6.10 And in that day when the Lord returns and searches the secrets of, of men's hearts, and when the labors of Christ's people are made manifest, on that day the faithful Christian will be able to rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. And all of the toil and the sorrow and the suffering and the, the heartache and the labors that Christians endure in this world to be faithful to their Lord, it will be well worth it on that day. Amen. Samuel Rutherford said, who spent half his life in prison, he put it this way, Emmanuel's land is so glorious, 
it would be a well it would be well worth it if seven deaths lay between us and it. You let that sink in. Yeah. Willing to die seven times if it led to eternal glory. The life totally committed to God has nothing to fear, nothing to lose, nothing to regret. And brothers and sisters, if Christ's church needs anything, it's faithful men and women, Christians who are steady, reliable, committed, zealous, and faithful to God, willing to pay the price to be faithful to God, no matter what. Amen. No matter what. Faithful in the church, faithful in our callings, faithful in our speech, faithful in everything. There's a psalm that says, ask this question, or it's, a, it's a, actually a prayer. Help, Lord, for the godly, godly man ceases, for the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. You know, that could be written today. The faithful have disappeared from among the sons of men. We need to pray that God would send help and raise up faithful men and women. What about us? But what about us? What about us? Are we among the faithful? Is the fruit of the Spirit faithfulness? Is it conspicuous in us? Will Jesus be able to commend us as having been faithful even over a few things? I ask myself. I ask you. May God grant that the Lord Jesus will be able to say to you and to me, Well done, good and faithful servant. Christ has been and is faithful to us. Will we not be faithful to Him? Yes, sir. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we cry out to You, Lord, for help. The godly man ceases. There's hardly a faithful man or woman to be found. And yet we know there are some. We know there are those that are willing to die for your cause. And we thank you for them. Make us more faithful. We might declare your glory and your truth to our generation. And our lives might reflect the fruit of faithfulness day in and day out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Sarah, benediction from God's Word, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen.